Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and work your way to uh, the book of Romans. We, uh, last week, as I uh, gave the final benediction, I immediately had a sense of dread uh, and thought, oh no, next week I have to preach Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is where we're going to be at this morning. And some of you are laughing. Some of you are like, well, let's deal with Romans chapter 9. You'll see. Uh, and hopefully you've done some work ahead of time and you can dug into that a little bit. Uh, but uh, last week we, we gathered and, and we were at the end of chapter 8, which was just this crescendo of the amazing good news that if you are in Christ, nothing shall separate you from the love of God. And I said last week, just receive that as a gift. Just rest in that. Just rest in the security that you are in the grip of God's sovereign grace. And so uh, I, I said, don't worry about asking questions. Don't worry about uh, wrestling with it too much. Just rest in that. But, but if you know Romans 9, there, there's a distinctive break. There, there is definitely a shift in, in focus. In fact, a lot of times if you're, if you're like me trying to uh, get other, other input and see what, how other people preach this, they'll skip over 9, 10, and 11 and go right into 12. Because you've got Romans 1 through 8, which is just the gospel explained. Romans 12 through 16, the gospel applied. But then you've got this section of 9, 10, 11, which is theologically dense. It is rich. Um, and, and, and actually, as I was fearing this last week to get into it, as I began to get into it, God actually changed some things in my perspective of this, changed how I saw this. Um, see, see I've, I've never preached through the book of Romans, mostly because I knew Romans 9 was going to be in the series at some point. And so for 20 years, I had, I had kind of gone around it. Sometimes I I'd go into some verses in Romans chapter 9, and I would make theological points from there. Uh, but this is the first time that in the context of the whole book, coming to, the, to, to 9 and, and seeing what does it actually say, uh, I, I've been humbled by this uh, chapter. In fact, I, I've come to deeply love and appreciate all that this chapter has. Uh, see, so uh, th- there's a thing in theology called systematic theology. Systematic theology is where, where you take the doctrines of God's word and you, you begin to just pull them all together to, to, to have understandings of things. And it's helpful. So, for example, if you want a uh, doctrine of the Trinity, then you would uh, go to your systematic theology book and it would say, uh, look at this passage, look at this passage, look at this passage. God's triune in nature. He's one in essence. The Father's God. The Son's God. The Spirit's God. And you'd begin to uh, compile all those things. And that is helpful. And, but, but it's not always helpful. There are, there are ways that we can go about systematic theology that, that instead of deepen our understanding of God, can actually flatten our understanding of God. And, and prior to this week, I think that's how I've treated Romans chapter 9. I think I've, I've used it as some theological bullets to, to win arguments that, that, that are, are uh, maybe true, but not the sense and the heart of, uh, of what, what Paul is getting at here. So I, I've, I've been humbled. I've, I've been uh, grateful for this. And, and I hope in, in some small way that, that I can communicate that to you as well. So again, last week in eight, uh, you can imagine with the crescendo of the, the joy of the gospel that, that the crowd that would have received this, and this was a letter written to a real people group, a real church in the first century in Rome made up predominantly of Gentile believers, that means not Jewish, and some Jewish believers. You can imagine them hearing these things about the amazing mercy of God and busting out in spontaneous worship. Uh, but, but then uh, Paul turns his attention with, from the Gentiles and he begins to address 
his Jewish audience. Because as they hear all the amazing things that Paul had just said in Romans chapter 8, just stacking on top of each other, there, there might have been a temptation for them to say, yeah, but is it possible that, is, it, is that really too good to be true? Because Paul well, we know, we are God's people. We have millennia of history with God, of deep and long promises from God. And as we look around, it seems like maybe, at least for God's people, the Jewish people, that he has, he has not accomplished what he said he would accomplish. It's possible that maybe God's word had failed. Now, no one would actually say that, but maybe they were feeling that. And so Paul wants to address that. Last week I said just receive the goodness of God's sovereignty over your life. But, but this week we, we look at the other side of that coin. We, we look at the dark side of the moon when, when it comes to God's sovereignty and the questions that that, that raises. And, and Paul is going to address questions. And they're, as such, as he's going to address a Jewish audience, he's going to go to uh, Jewish scriptures. He's going to go to some shared knowledge that they would have already to make his points, that, that the Gentiles and maybe us in this room don't have the depth and breadth of knowledge. And so he's just going to reference things one after the other after the other. In fact, Romans 9, 10, and 11 has the densest amount of, of Old Testament references in all of Paul's writings. And so we, we've got some work to do uh, to dig in. So Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And and this is a Sunday where I'm going to ask you to lean in and love the Lord with your mind. Because it's going to take some, it's going to be intense. In fact, I told Rick this week, I said, Rick, I'm going to give one of your sermons. Man, it's going to be intense uh, for 37 minutes, uh, but that's okay. That's what this passage is going to demand of us. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9 and... um, and just remember, all, all scriptures God breathed and useful for our edification, for our teaching, for our training, for correcting, uh, training in righteousness, all these things. So keep that in mind. And before we do that, let me pray uh, and, and then we'll d- dive in together. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. And today we ask that what we know not, you'd teach us. What we are not, you'd make us. What we have not, you'd give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 9. And, and the thing that absolutely, totally and radically changed my perspective, not necessarily my thought, theology, but my perspective is the first five verses. So let's jump in there. It says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Okay, Paul, what are you so adamant about that you're telling the truth? He tells us in verse 2, that... I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. We'll come back to that. But why do you feel that way, Paul? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about his Jewish brothers, and in some cases, maybe the actual brothers and sisters, but also uh, his extended family, his town, the place he grew up, his nation. He's uh, longing for them. He's pleading for them. He says, they are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
And again, every other time I've taught or come to Romans 9, I've jumped over these verses and, and just got into the theology. But the thing that struck me and has given me a radically new view of this whole entire chapter is this. That we cannot and should not have Paul's theology without first having Paul's heart. Because if you just go to his theology in this chapter, that can fuel a kind of arrogance and spiritual pride that, that it was never intended to fuel. But look at his heart. He says, I, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish. His bed would be full of his own tears. Why? Because he so desperately wanted his brothers and sisters and his lost friends and family and his neighborhood and his nation to come and know Jesus. And they just weren't embracing him. They just weren't accepting him. And this was not some cool and different thing for Paul. He's not just an ivory tower theologian writing truths about God. It breaks his heart. And if our heart is not broken for those around us that don't know Jesus, if our heart is not broken for our neighborhood and then our nation and the nations, if we're not weeping tears, we have no right to, be, to stand on, 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 on the rest of these verses and say, well, here's what God is like. No, he, this comes from a deep, personal, pastoral place in his heart. Do, do you weep for anybody? Does it bother you that you have family members or friends or neighbors or uh, fellow students or, 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 or does, does, does any of that bother you? It bothered Paul. And he, he would cry about it. He'd be in anguish. He would pray to God. So with that, he begins to answer some questions. And, and verse 6 may be the thesis of these three chapters in the middle. It's certainly the thesis uh, of chapter 9. Uh, he says this, but it is not as though... The word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, now this is crazy because uh, it's crazy that it seems like that's the case because Paul has just listed eight privileges that Israel has had uh, in verses four and five. He says they have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, worship, promises. To them belong the patriarchs. The, the, the forefathers from their race and according to the flesh, the ultimate uh, gift is the Christ, the Messiah who came and dwelt among us. And, and John tells us he, he came to his own, though his own did not receive him. Th- these were not small things. These weren't little hints along the way pointing to God. Th- these weren't breadcrumbs to follow I- I- and find Jesus. No, these were massive neon signs saying, this is who God is. This is the way to salvation. This is the way to relationship. And they had ignored them all. And so the question is, those promises, have they failed? And Paul says, no, they haven't failed. And his answer to that is, not all who are descended in Israel belong to Israel. Not everyone who says they're Israel, not everyone who has the birth certificate, not everyone that has the lineage can say, I am true Israel. And Paul is going to show these Jewish people that has always been the case. That has always been how God has dealt with his covenant people. And so he begins to unpack some Old Testament references. He's going to do two in this paragraph from the book of Genesis. He'll do two in the book of Exodus in the next paragraph. And he'll just continue to roll out these truths. But let's look at it. Has God's word failed? He says, verse 7. Not all the children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are 
the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. What, what is he talking about here? He, he's talking about how the promise came in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. He says, through you, you're going to have offspring that, that uh, like sand on the seashore. You're gonna, they're just going to explode. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And Paul says, but not all of them are Israel. Not all of them are Israel. And he immediately points to this story. God had come to Abraham and his wife Sarah when they were very advanced in age, well past childbearing years. And he says, this is what's going to happen. She's going to give birth. But then they wait and they wait and they wait. And in their waiting, they get this idea that sometimes we get this idea, right? It's a, it's a false idea. It's a terrible idea, but it's this. God, you must, I, I know what, God, you help those who help themselves, and so Sarah is like, it's not happening. I'm over 90 years old. It's not going to happen. I tell you what, Abram, why, why don't you sleep with my maidservant, Hagar? And he's like, well, if I have to, okay. And so the, he does. Uh, this is crazy. It's in the Bible. Uh, he does. And, and Ishmael is born. So in a physical descendant of Abram, who the pro- promise came to, is born. But, but Paul reminds us, that's not who the promise was for. The promise was for Sarah's offspring. It's for uh, Abraham and Isaac. And so he says right away, you see that not all are physically descended from Abraham are Israel. But then he ups the ante even more. He goes to Isaac's children. Look at verse uh, 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. The, and, and so in, in, now it's not just a, a different mother and same father. It's same father, same mother. In fact, same womb. Jacob and Esau are in the womb together. In fact, uh, we know from the story that Esau actually comes out first. And therefore, by all rights, in that day would have the rights to the blessing, the rights to the inheritance, the, the, by, by all measures, should be the one who inherits the promise. But that's not what happens It's not God's will. Look what it says, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So so Paul is just pointing out it wasn't because of anything in them. It wasn't because uh, Esau was worse than Jacob or or otherwise. It says they had done nothing good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election, his sovereign choosing grace might continue, not because of works, not anything that they did, but because of him, that's God, who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And again, that that strikes us as, ah, I don't normally conceive God in those terms. He's actually quoting Malachi. It's actually a, a Hebrew idiom. It, it isn't the, the, emotional, uh, that, m- the emotions that we would tie to these words. It, 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 it really just means this. Jacob I had chosen and, and Esau I hadn't. Jacob I preferred and Esau I didn't. And we're not told why, but we are told that it wasn't anything in them. It wasn't that one was better than the other. In fact, the argument could easily be made. If you're just choosing the the, the one that's better, choose Esau. Jacob is is literally known as the deceiver. And there there was nothing good in him that God would say, yes, Jacob. Uh, Jesus uses this idiom himself in his teaching, this Hebrew idiom. He says, unless you hate your mother and father and your family member, you cannot be my disciple. 
Jesus wasn't saying, like, hey, put a banner on your church wall and say, come to Redemption Parker and hate your mom. That's not, that's not his point there. His point was, like, you have to have your ultimate allegiance to me. This is what he was getting at. But he says, the older will serve the younger. And, and now the Jewish audience would have been like, that. well, that's true. That's true. And in fact, Paul points out it wasn't because uh, of any moral superiority or one was smarter than the other. It was simply because of God's sovereign grace, his choosing grace. But that raises some questions. It certainly uh, it raised questions then and it raises questions now. It can seem like arbitrary. Well, why Jacob and not Esau? You haven't, you haven't told us why. And God isn't going to tell us why. But But here's what but we do know, just because he doesn't tell us why, it doesn't mean it was arbitrary. Just because the, the reason isn't located in Jacob or Esau, but, but in God's eternal wisdom, doesn't mean it's arbitrary. And so brings up the next question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And just even writing that or, or having his scribe write that just gets to Paul so quickly. He immediately answers with the, the strongest Greek negation possible. Meganoito. By no means. There is no injustice in God. Okay, Paul. There's no injustice in God. It still seems kind of arbitrary. Jacob or Esau. How, how do you answer that? Verse 15. For he says to Moses. And again, now he's going to go to the book of Exodus. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So he answers the, the, the justice question with a mercy answer. Well, here's how John Stott, a theologian pastor, had, had put this. He says, Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. It sounds like a complete non sequitur, but it is not. It simply indicates that the question itself is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. And this is something we could praise God about. If God strictly dealt with justice as, as the way he deals with us, then all of us, we've seen in the book of Romans, all of us would go headlong in our rebellion to eternal damnation. This is the truth. But, but because mercy, by definition, is not something that is uh, owed to anybody, God is free to give it to A, nobody, and he'd still be just and right and good in doing so. B, everybody, he could have chosen to do that or see some people. And then we ask the question, well, why did he choose see? And Paul's not going to totally answer that, but the Bible does answer some of it. The Bible simply says that whatever God does, he does for his glory. And you might not be happy with that. You might not like that answer, but God is radically God-centered. He's radically committed to putting on display his glory. And, and that's another sermon for another time, but that is actually radically good news to us. But, but let's just take the example that Paul uses. He says, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And this is Exodus 33. The, the, the Jewish people reading this would have immediately thought of Exodus 32. Well, what happened in Exodus 32 that this wouldn't be so shocking? Well, in Exodus 32, it had right been after, after God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt 
through the plagues and through the Red Sea, brought them into the wilderness, reestablished his covenant love with them, had taken, Ab- had taken Abram, had taken Moses up onto Mount Sinai and was giving him the law. And as he was meeting with Moses on the mountain, down below, the people got antsy. They began to clamor. They began to fret. They began to become afraid. And they came to Aaron, Moses' brother, and said, hey, make for us a god. He's like, okay, give me all your gold. And they take all their earrings, and he gets all their gold, and he crafts and, and shapes an, an idol, a, a golden calf. They began to worship the golden calf. They began to bow down, and they proclaimed to the golden calf, this is our God. This is our God who delivered us from the hands of the Egyptians. One commentator said it would be like committing adultery on your honeymoon. This is the kind of uh, uh, rebellion that the people had. What do they deserve in that moment? They deserve the justified wrath of God to come down on them. This is how you're going to treat me. This is what you're going to do to me after I've shown you nothing but mercy, nothing but love, nothing but grace. And so the question is, what is God going to do? Moses intercedes. He begs God for your name and for your glory and your renown among all the earth. Please, Lord, have mercy. And God has mercy. And then Moses gets really bold. He says, and also, show me your glory. And in Exodus 33, he says, okay, you can't see all of it, but I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass by. And when he passes by, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The Israelites did not deserve mercy, and yet it glorified God to show mercy to these people. So this is... What, what glorifies God? But, but let's take it from the other side. If that glorifies God, does it glorify God to show wrath? And the answer is, in Romans 9, yes. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or, exist, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He shifts his attention now to, uh, to, to Pharaoh. But again, what you need to know is no one deserves mercy or else it wouldn't be called mercy. Mercy is freely given, and the one that gives it is free to give it or not give it. So, so for example, um, LeBron James grew up in Akron, Ohio, in a poor community. And, and a few years ago, he invested his money, and he built a school called the I Promise School that, that gives uh, children at risk and, and uh, uh, just an opportunity that they wouldn't other ha- otherwise have to learn STEM and, and go to college. And, and he is rightly celebrated for that. But no one is like, LeBron, it's unfair. There's, there's lots of other communities and, and other places where you've played and you haven't built a school there because it's, he's free to do it or not do it. And it, God is free to give it or not give it. And now he turns his attention to Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He, he draws their attention to Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh. God was glorified in how he interacted with Pharaoh. And how did he interact with Pharaoh? Well, well he tells us. He says uh, he hardens whomever he wills. When you read the, the, the text in Exodus, you see several times two things happening. It says that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And other times it says, Pharaoh was hardening his own heart. And we're like, well, well, which is it? And the answer is yes. It is both. 
You're like, well, how? Then how, how does that work? And this, then we begin to see the mystery of human responsibility and divine sovereignty coming together. How, how does that work? Sometimes when the question is posed, uh, the, we, we, we think of Pharaoh as like this morally, spiritually neutral guy who's just kind of going along his day, and then God's like, I'm going to harden that guy, and he's going to, uh, he's going to totally uh, wreak havoc. No, that's not what happens at all. We know Pharaoh was already a wicked, wicked man. He was the chief slave owner and slave trader of the region, of an entire people group. He had in, instituted systems of injustice to put to, get, to death all of the babies of the Israelites. He's wicked. It isn't until after the sixth plague where God had sent plague after plague after plague that, that it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What's going on here? Uh, every time before that and, and during this, it says Pharaoh is hardening his heart, hardening his heart. Well, we've already seen this in Romans chapter 1. How, how does God harden someone's heart? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He gives them up to their sin. The way that God hardens a person's heart is, is simply removing his restraining grip of grace. So, so he says, you, 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 I'm going to use you for my glory. Your heart's going to get hard. I'm just going to remove my hand and give you full on to what you want most anyway. And Pharaoh's heart gets hardened, gets hardened. And God then shows his glory in how he deals with Pharaoh. But then that raises another question. Okay, it seems if God is sovereign, is this just fatalism? Is this just, I mean, there are religious systems out there that, are, that is just fatalism. And it sounds like, well, it doesn't, do we have anything to say? And if it's just fatalism, then, then are we really to blame? This is what the question is in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? The answer is emphatically that this is not a fatalistic system, but it is a system that, that is beyond our present capacity to understand. Look at what he says in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his, its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Well, what is he, what is he talking about there? He's just saying, he's addressing, he's going on the offensive. He's addressing this attitude that, 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 that when we put ourselves uh, on par with God, where we put God in the dock, uh, Job did this. Like, I'm going to ask some questions of God. And God's answer wasn't to answer all of Job's questions. His answer was like, you can't possibly understand I am God and you are not. Were you there when the foundations of the earth were laid? No, you weren't? Okay, well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. It's, it's, he's addressing the person with an arrogant attitude that says, well, I know better than God. He's saying, listen, you don't. Just because we don't know all of God's ways and reasons. Listen, God is infinite in his power. We are not. He can speak the universe into existence. What can you speak into existence? Nothing. Well, you can create about 98.5 degrees of heat. He can make stars that are 28 billion degrees. Like, like in, in every way, his power is infinitely above ours. Wouldn't that be true also of his knowledge and his wisdom? Right? 
Do, do we really think we're on par with God? And, and, and if you have a God where you, you, you know all the things that he knows, isn't that a weak, impotent God that's just a figment, figment of your imagination anyway? I mean, listen, I, I went to uh, my dog Mila yesterday, and I was like, Mila, Mila, come here. She came up because she can obey some commands. I said, Mila, I got to tell you about investing. Um, you really need to invest over the long term in the S&P 500 index fund. And let me tell you about uh, compounding interest. And she ran away and got her ball. She's like, what? She's gone. She, th- th- there's a gap in, in ability to understand. And if there's a gap between me and my dog, how much more is there a gap between me and my God, who's infinite in knowledge and wisdom, goodness and grace, mercy and divine justice? And so... He says, listen, you, you have to understand who you are in this thing. Just because you can't understand everything doesn't mean God doesn't have good reasons. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, again, that, that strikes our, our modern sensibilities even as wrong. What do you mean God desires to show his wrath? Well, he's already showed us that he, he gets glory in that. And we'll talk about it in a second. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? I don't know if you could follow the argument there here, but, but he's saying, look, God is glorified in all that he does. All that he does, whether it's giving mercy or, or showing his wrath, puts on display his character, his nature, his glory. You're like, how does God showing his wrath show his glory? Well, uh, we don't have time to go into this more, but he, he shows, well, God was glorified when he exercised his divine right to justice over Sodom and Gomorrah. We know God was glorified when he uh, sent plague after plague on the Egyptians. God was glorified when, when he split the Red Sea and his people went through. And then the Egyptian army came in and the, the ocean went back over them and destroyed them. It was an exercise of his divine wrath. The people of God have known that this brings God glory. There are entire psalms dedicated to that scene right there. God, you are glorious. You are powerful. You are right. You are good. You love justice. And so we sing about that, but, but we know, we know as God's people, you should know as God's people, that God is absolutely glorified in the exercise of his divine wrath. We need to look no further than the cross of Christ. On the cross, he received the divine wrath that you and I rightly deserved. On the cross, we see both the, the love and the justice of God. We see the holiness of God. We see the mercy of God. We see the, the righteousness of God. We see it all being poured out on his son Jesus on the cross. And we say, that's the most beautiful, glorious thing that has ever happened. So it's not beyond our capacity to understand that God demonstrating his justice, his wrath also shows his glory. But, it, but look what it says here. Um, he's enduring with people prepared for destruction uh, with much patience. One that should give us some encouragement. That there, that there are people in, in your world who, who hate God right now. There are people in your world that seem like they would never come to Christ. But, but thankfully, God is patient with them. It says, with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And then he compares that to another group of people. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. 
This is why it's important to pay attention to the details. It says some are prepared for destruction, but he doesn't tell us by whom or by what. Well, he has told us in the book of Romans that all of us in and of ourselves have, have gone in headlong rebellion. We have prepared ourselves for destruction so that we are totally responsible for our own destruction. But then he says there are others um, in verse 23, which he, very specifically, he has prepared beforehand for glory. So in the end, you see that anyone that ever gets saved, 100% of the credit and the glory and the honor goes to the one who saved them, God. And in the end, all that go into destruction, 100% of the responsibility and the blame goes to them because they have prepared themselves for destruction. There is this mystery intersecting between the divine sovereignty of God and human responsibility. And we want to, we want to kind of like go to one or the other, but the Bible doesn't give us that. Doesn't, doesn't allow that. It, one commentator said it wasn't as if the Apostle Paul sat down to wrote, write Romans 9 with, with a copy of uh, Calvin's Institutes in one hand and Jacob Arminius's works in the other hand to figure out which one was right. Now the Bible is comfortable with the tension. It's called an antinomy. It's an apparent contradiction that is not, but beyond our present capacity to understand. D.A. Carson put it this way. The sovereignty, responsibility, tension is not a problem to be solved. Rather, it is a framework to be explored. You are a responsible person. And God is completely sovereign over salvation. Someone asked Spurgeon, how do you resolve these two tensions? How, how, how do you reconcile these things? And he says, I never have to reconcile friends. They work together. God gets the glory. And we are responsible. Well, how does this look? Well, well uh, Dr. James Kennedy was a pastor. He's, been, he's gone on to be with the Lord. He, he gave an illustration once that I thought was helpful in illustrating how God gets all the credit in salvation and we get all the responsibility for those of us that go uh, into destruction. He said, imagine, um, well, let's just, let's just make it personal. Imagine we got Ryan and Brad and Rick and Aaron and they decide they want to rob a bank. And they start their plans and then they, they try to rope me into it. I'm like, this is a terrible idea, guys. No, we, we're, we can't rob a bank. I realized, I mean, we'll just, the people will start giving eventually. Like, just, we're not going to rob a bank. They're like, no, we're going to rob the bank. Like, don't do it. And, then, and they push me out of the way. And, and as a last-ditch effort, I, I catch up. I think I can only catch up to Brad because he's my age and closer to my age. And I, I tackle Brad and I, I restrain Brad. But, but the, the, the other three, they go on and they commit this atrocious crime and it goes poorly. And, and uh, they, they shoot a guard and the guard dies and they get arrested and they go to trial. Now, now who's responsible for the guard's death? Well, these three. But it isn't as if Brad can walk around saying, the reason I didn't go to prison is because my heart is so good. I just, I just made the right choices. No, I get the credit for Brad not going to prison in that, in that scenario, right? And this is, this is a picture of, of, of why you are responsible. You are responsible for your choices and your actions. And the, the Bible repeatedly calls us to obey things, to pray to pray for one another, to pray for the lost, 
The Bible repeatedly calls us, and in, in, in chapter 10, there's this, this chapter 9 is an emphasis on God's sovereignty. Chapter 10, there's going to be an emphasis on our responsibility. It calls us to, uh, to take the gospel to places and not just say, well, God's sovereign over that. Like, no. See, God is sovereign over all things, absolutely. You know God is sovereign over the number of your days. He, he knows when you will take your last breath. But you eat food. You wear your seatbelt. You, you, you live your life. Because you know if you don't eat food, you don't wear your seatbelt, you could die. Is God sovereign over that? Sure. But it's foolishness to just say, well, because God's sovereign, I don't do anything. And that's not what the Bible would ever give us that option. So what are some takeaways from this passage that, that I think... God would have for Redemption Park. I have five of them. I'll put them on the screen here. And the first one is from the first few verses. Let's share Paul's burden for the lost. Again, just remember how this chapter started. It started with a heart that was broken. It started with a heart of mercy, a heart of concern. Let, it, let us not go on to any of the other ones if we can't get this one first. So let's share Paul's burden before we share his theology. Number two, Let's let God's mercy fuel our humility, awe, and worship. God gets all the credit. You don't deserve anything, and yet he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And so we just say, wow, you you would have mercy on me. And that that fuels my worship. You get the credit, get the glory. Number three, let's never doubt God's goodness and faithfulness. This is that, that question like, well, are you really good? Are you really there? But, but we know that even though we can't understand all the things that God is doing, we know his character. We, we need to look no further than the cross to see his goodness and his faithfulness. Number four, let's embrace the mystery of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It will not do well for you to go and stand before the king of kings and say, I didn't obey any of your commands because you're sovereign. That's foolishness. Number five, Let's let Romans 9 expand the greatness and glory of God in our minds and our lives. This was here for our edification, for our worship. Um, I didn't say this in the last sermon, but uh, Romans 9 is the reason John Piper became a pastor. He was a professor, and he was teaching on these truths, and he took a sabbatical to, to uh, study Romans 9 for six months and to write a book called The Justification of God, but to, to be able to answer all of his students' questions. But, but at the end of it, he sensed God was saying, My, these doctrines, these verses are not just meant to be studied. They're meant to be proclaimed, exalted in, heralded in. He's like, I've got to go do that amongst God's people. Michael Byrd, a theologian, I'll close with this, says this about this last point. It says, Romans forces one to look at the big story, develop a big theology so that we grasp just how big God is. If you want to live big for God, you have to have a big picture of God. That bigness begins by getting your head around the depth and the breadth of God's person as Paul tells us about, in, about him in Romans. If you wrestle with a big God, you will begin to develop big faith muscles That is the kind of faith training that our churches desperately need. Nobody needs nugget-sized bits of advice from a puny God who wouldn't scare a fly. Or lifestyle tips from a God who looks like a cheap ripoff from a TV therapist. What we should give people 
The best thing we can give people is a big God who leaves them in awe of his character and of his grace. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, again, we come before you in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. Lord, I realize that this passage may have brought up more questions than it answered. Lord, I pray that we would still be able to rest in the goodness of your sovereignty and your grace and mercy and the character of who you are. Lord, let us be a church that walks with joy in the things that you call us to and rests with comfort knowing that you're in control of all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.